0: Hello, how are you? I'm, good. I'm just
1: going to step right on your line there. Thank I'm you. Gregory Gauz. I'm, <laughs> I'm the head of the International Affairs Department at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University, for those of you who might
0: be tuning in for the first time. You have been the department head for a long time now, Greg. How long is your sentence?
1: Uh, I have, this is, I'm beginning my seventh year of an eight year sentence with uh, no early release. Unless the dean fires me. Depends on what I say. Depends on what I say during the podcast.
0: All Maybe right. You- <laughs> well, I can try to get you fired. I mean, it could be if you're tired of your administrative responsibilities, that could be a, an ongoing goal.
1: But you can't be fired now because you've gotten tenure. Congratulations.
0: Thank you. Finally promoted to associate professor with tenure. Felt like a long, long, long journey.
1: Well, it was as long as I've been department head because you and
0: I came <laughs> the same year. We did two thousand and fourteen, man, where does the time go? two thousand and fourteen
1: well, boy that that sounds that sounds like a long time doesn't it?
0: <laughs> such uh such quaint times of two thousand and fourteen such quaint times we were we were <laughs> we were worried
1: about we were worried about what seemed to be such insignificant
0: things now. I can't even remember what we were worrying about in two thousand and fourteen. I don't have any good recollections <laughs> i
1: don't I don't have a recollection of what was dominating our our discussions
0: ha. Uh, no, me neither. Well, we're back. It's good, to, uh, it's good to be back. If you're joining us, you'll notice, uh, if you're joining us live, we're not on Facebook Live anymore. We have swapped over to YouTube and try this out, see how we uh, how well we can uh, work with YouTube. We're also trying out a few small graphics. You'll, you'll see uh, some attempt at the Bush School logo up there and uh, our title, Bush School Uncorked. Those of you listening on the podcast, on the regular old-fashioned pod, they're not going to be able to see any of that. But That's funny. Like the old-fashioned
1: videos... pod. The old-fashioned pod. <laughs> when did when Two did podcasts again, start? 2014. I mean, when, you know, when did podcasts well, start?
0: Well, we also can't remember any of the anything from 2014, given all the series of uh, cultural traumas since then. So, I think it counts as old now. <laughs> yeah. I Facebook think so. even feels a little dated, um, and uh, it's only got a few more years on it. <laughs> So uh, a couple housekeeping things. Uh, Greg and I have decided that we'll come to you every other week um, up through probably the first or second week of December, uh, but definitely through November. Same time, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Central. And unless we announce otherwise, we'll continue to be on our YouTube channel, on uh, the Bush School and Cork YouTube channel. And you'll be able to still hear us on the podcast at SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, whatever uh, platform you're listening to our, our soothing voices there. Or, or direct from the Bush school website. Or direct from the Bush school website, which is also right. Um, I think that's all I have. Any housekeeping stuff you have at the beginning, Greg? Um, you, know you know, I good. don't
1: do any work on this podcast. You're the one who does all the work.
0: and do the talking.
1: <laughs> I just, well, the, on, I just come on and bloviate.
0: <laughs> the other thing uh, that I'll mention is we, we have a couple of guests that have agreed to join us um and uh we'll announce those as we get closer to time and uh, we're hoping to have some of our regulars visit with us and some new folks to keep it kind of interesting we're gonna so, have a
1: kind of a COVID theme mm-hmm. for a number of the shows and of course the election uh and then whatever else comes across the radar screen
0: yeah i think COVID and elections will dominate um and I decided earlier today, Greg, you have our international affairs spin that uh, I'm going to make science and technology and science technology policy what I'm going to force on the conversation a little bit more often. So be prepared.
1: I'll try to be sick those days.
0: (laughs) Hey, if I can learn about international affairs, (laughs) you can handle the science and tech.
1: Fair enough.
0: we're going to try a new one other new feature uh, for those of you following along. Um, let's see if it'll pop up for me. Ah, yeah. We're going to list our topics as we go to keep Greg and I organized. We have a number of topics for you. At some point, I'll figure out how to display them at the beginning um, so you know what's coming. Um, but just, what, maybe three hours ago now, we have some big news. Greg, do you want to share the big news? So
1: I'm sure everyone listening is, already knows that Kamala Harris has been chosen by Joe Biden to be his running mate. And uh, the Democratic Party basically came coalesced around her. All the other women who had been listed either officially by the Biden campaign or unofficially by the media as potential contenders all tweeted out their support for her. And so the Democratic Party seems pretty united going into this election.
0: Well, um, it'll be, <laughs> Craig, I'm not excited for the election. I mean, even as an election junkie and exciting news today, I'm having a hard time being excited. But
1: Well, we, we've got, it's, it's a weird election, right? Because you and I, I've watched elections a lot longer than you have. That's true. And you always pretty much knew on election night who was going to win. And if not, it would be a couple of days, right? Mm-hmm. And that's just not going to be the case this year. Uh, The New York Times reported today that 73, I think they said 73% of American voters have the option of voting by mail. And so that count, as we know from these primaries and from from past elections, uh, that count could, could last days after Election Day. And uh, and that raises all sorts of interesting and troubling issues that we can talk about in some other in some other <laughs>
0: Um Yeah, so I want to talk about concerns about the election um, on on the vice. No, president- but, but
1: hey, first it says vice president pick up.
0: I know, I know. We so we got to talk.
1: We got we got to talk a little <laughs> bit more about Kamala Harris, don't
0: you think? So this is no surprise, right? Um, she was, I think in some d- days leading up, there was some, uh, I think Susan Rice divested of some, a lot of Netflix stock. I think she was considered potentially a front runner for a couple days, but I think Kamala has, uh, Kamala has been uh, the lead, at least from my viewpoint for a long time. Once, once Joe Biden committed to it, definitely being a woman, although i don't think he needed to commit to it for that to end up being the natural choice this uh, this go-around for lots of reasons. Um, and then I think if you were following the political narrative, it seemed pretty clear that it would be a woman of color. Um, and given those two things, Kamala always seemed like the from the stage, you know, just as like observing the stage and the Kind of the political dialogue the, the clear takeaway I mean she's got a lot of gravitas herself she's got been on the national stage for a real amount of time. she's able to hold her own, I would think in all kinds of different situations. Um, she's got a, a, a background uh, from a couple of different branches of government um, she has a high profile so you know I think <clears throat> well this isn't surprising, I like the pick. I mean, I think she'll be a, a, a great VP. Uh, I think she'll add some fire to the ticket. If you're worried about Joe Biden not having fire, I think she'll add some fire to the ticket. And um, I also, you know, she's not going to take insults from Trump and shrink away. Um, so that'll, you know, she'll hold her own. I think what, what's your take on her as the pick?
1: So I, I thought that she would be the pick, uh, and and I thought she was the best pick. I think that when you're up by 10 points in the polls, and another national poll, the one from Monmouth came out today that has uh, uh, Biden up 51-41, another 10 point poll lead. I think what you do is you try to do no harm, and he had. He had basically constrained his choices by his by his past comments, promising to pick a woman, and making it pretty clear that that he was looking for a, a woman of color in the in the in the wake of the events of the summer. And, and so there weren't. It was a fairly narrow field at that point, and Kamala Harris, I think, is the one who has the best qualifications to do the job. Val Demings and Karen Bass, I think, are impressive politicians, but maybe not as tested on a statewide level. They both are are Congresswomen. Uh, Susan Rice, extremely smart, has held uh, important foreign policy positions. But Joe Biden has always said that he's a foreign policy president, right? He was on the Foreign Relations Committee, I think his entire time in the Senate. I actually testified in front of him once at the, on the Senate for Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, and uh, he didn't need a vice president who would bring foreign policy chops to the, to the ticket. Mm-hmm. And Susan Rice has never run for office. Yeah. You know, there's, a, there's an old story about Lyndon Johnson when he was vice president in the Kennedy administration, talking to one of his mentors, Sam Rayburn, the Texas Democrat, who was a famous Speaker of the House of Representatives? And, and Lyndon supposedly said to Mr. Sam, Oh, these guys Kennedy has around him, Mr. Sam, they're they're so smart, you know, they're Harvard, they're MIT, they're so smart. And Rayburn supposedly said back to him, I wish one of them had run for dog catcher once.
0: <laughs> That's great. And
1: and I, I think that that was the thing with, with uh, Ambassador Rice is, you know, I think it's awful tough to make your first political campaign running on the national ticket as the vice presidential candidate. Now, you know, you can say, well, Donald Trump did it. Yeah, but Donald Trump, I don't know if Donald Trump, you want Donald Trump as your model. And, you know, he had been a, he had been a, a television huckster for so long. I, I, I just I just don't I I just don't think Susan Rice, I think Susan Rice would have been more buffeted and shocked by the intensity of the media uh, scrutiny, the constant media scrutiny and the misogynist yeah. attacks than Kamala Harris, who has run statewide office in California a number of times, the Senate seat, but also attorney general, and and ran for president, not, not particularly successfully, but had that, you know, had those couple of months of pretty intense media scrutiny. I I think this is the safe choice. And you know, Justin, you know, the political science literature, vice presidential candidates can't help you, they can only hurt you. And, yeah. and I don't think Kamala Harris will hurt Joe Biden.
0: Yeah, two things. Um one that uh as I was getting ready for our meeting, I I jumped on Twitter. Uh what? um, Yeah I did. What's what's that? I jumped on Twitter.
1: Jumped on it? Is that is it like a trampoline? What what is it?
0: You surf it. You surf through the pages and then you jump on the page you'd like to be on. Okay. And um Nate Silver um had tweeted. That uh, the uh, almost immediately that good news now Biden would win California, <laughs> which for a political scientist and and uh, is a is a joke on to your point. You know they don't actually help, but conventional wisdom has been uh, in recent times to pick somebody that might help in a swing state. Right. Um, and in this case, I mean, I don't know why you would even think about characterizing this election as a typical election, um, but it, it is another departure from a typical election where the conversation might have been around, oh, should the person be from Texas? And you try to flip Texas or Georgia or somewhere that might, or Florida that might well, help you take a right?
1: State. Florida, right, Val Demings. Mm-hmm. If, if if the choice is constrained to, to women of color, Val Demings from Florida. Uh, so another swing state woman, governor, uh, Gretchen Whitmer from Michigan. Those those would have been the swing state choices, right? And
0: Stacey Abrams from Georgia was one that- uh, Yeah, but somebody who like, had,
1: hadn't even won statewide. Yeah, that's true, yeah.
0: And uh, um, the mayor. Uh, oh, uh, right,
1: the mayor of Atlanta.
0: I'm going to forget her name right now, but right. Lance Bottoms. There we go. Right, um, right was also, uh, from Georgia and a um, uh, mayor. And at some point was in the conversation. Um, well, look, if,
1: if Georgia is competitive, the election's over.
0: That's a good point. That's right? a good point. It's a good point.
1: Uh, Florida is, is a real swing state mm-hmm. with what Florida has as many electoral votes as New York now and, and, and is third or if it's fourth, it's just behind New York in terms of the number of electoral votes it has, right? It's California, Texas. And then I think New York and Florida have the same number of electoral votes. Although I might, Florida might be a couple below, but if if Biden wraps Florida, right? It's really hard to see how Trump wins the election. Whereas Georgia, if you're fighting in Georgia, if you're fighting in Texas, I think the election is over, because that means yeah. that Pennsylvania, <clears throat> Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, are all going Democratic, and so the election's over. So I I, I think if you were going to pick swing state, it, it would have been Florida.
0: Yeah.
1: The other thing that- I don't know I don't know how much Val, Val Demings helps you in Florida. She's never run statewide.
0: Yeah.
1: She's very impressive because she's never run
0: statewide. The other thing I thought about with Kamala from a governing perspective is both uh, her and Biden have spent time in the Senate. So if the election does break Democratic, um, you could imagine a, a strong relationships between them and potential senators to maybe get some legislative making done. Um, so that was one other potential positive I thought of.
1: Right. Well, we'll talk about this down the line, but. I think the biggest question of this election is going to be how does the senate go Mm because if you get if you get a 50 50 senate and biden elected which is a distinct possibility uh, then you have the vice president breaking the tie and i just assume that the democrat that immediately you do away with the filibuster Mm -hmm. And, and then you know presuming that the democrats hold the house which i think is what most people who look at politics think. Then you have the possibility of, you know, an interesting first year in terms of, of legislation out of the Biden administration. On to election.
0: On to elections, is not that distinctly different, but uh, one of the things that has been going on uh, is in the midst of, uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic has been concerns about how we might vote on election day and about the time there were concerns about how we would vote a narrative emerged that maybe some forms of voting weren't safe or were more fraudulent wildly more fraudulent than others and uh, particularly these are uh, claims by the president uh, at least is where this started it seems now that there are some more systematic attempts from the GOP to undermine mail-in ballots. Uh, I know just, it was, I was in Georgia when this conversation started and maybe we even talked about it this summer, but I watched some of the folks connected to my family that I knew all of a sudden, kind of almost overnight, mail-in ballots was something they would never do. It just isn't a real way to vote. And I was like, wait, what is going on here? Um, So, you know, I think there's already culturally some undermined just from how it's been talked about, but there do seem real attempts at also disrupting the postal service. I don't know how much of this you followed, but there are real attempts at disrupting the postal service and deliberately undermining its credibility from the top and within, um, which is, is, is truly concerning. and, the other thing I would say is that you know there's been the, a task force, kind of a transition task force that's bipartisan, that um, has been looking at different scenarios with how the election might go under different kind of uh, wind spreads, and kind of uh, what is it uh, red? What is it red teaming and blue teaming? And um,
1: well, not blue teaming, just red teaming. Just
0: red teaming, yeah. So red teaming and. Um, uh, I was watching an interview from someone on the task force and uh, your suspicion that we won't know who the winner is the night of, I think is pretty well founded. And um, I think no matter, and this was one, of you know, kind of how I think people are thinking about, no matter what, of course the current president's going to claim victory because that's his, his MO from his entire life. Yeah. Um, so what are your thoughts on the, the mail-in ballots and what what's going on with the postal service and um, concerns you have um, about the state of our democracy? I guess, for lack of better words. <laughs>
1: well, I worry about our democracy, obviously. But uh,
0: have you ever voted absentee? I've never voted absentee; always in person.
1: So I I have voted absentee. Uh, I I was uh, I was a student in Cairo studying Arabic during the nineteen. 19- Eighty-two elections. That was and only five uh,
0: years before I was born.
1: Only five. I voted. I voted absentee. Uh, I had to march down to the embassy and get a consul to witness me filing my, my ballot in my home state of Delaware. You know, Joe, Joe Biden and I are fellow Delawareans. Mm-hmm. In fact, he's tomorrow. Tomorrow, his uh, his media event with uh, Senator Harris is gonna be in the Hotel DuPont in downtown Wilmington uh, where I had my senior prom.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well. Oh, you asked me
1: about the Hotel DuPont. I know about the Hotel DuPont.
0: I'm glad your hometown and my hometown are in the news. We're gonna wait on my hometown being in the news, but. uh... We'll wait on on your hometown. (laughs) But that's cool though. Yeah,
1: so uh, I I voted absentee. The president has voted absentee. Our soldiers uh, deployed abroad have voted absentee. Uh, Four states, right? Oregon, Utah, Washington State, and I think one other, Colorado, basically run largely mail-in elections. Mm -hmm. There's been very little evidence, uh, no substantial evidence of, of serious fraud in these elections. But during the primaries, we've had these problems where uh, state electoral systems and county electoral systems and city electoral systems are not set up to count all these ballots. And that's, and, and that's troublesome. I mean, hire more people. You know? dem- this is our democracy. Hire more people. All of you election systems. I don't care if you have to go out and beg for money <laughs> on the street corner. Hire more people. I'll volunteer in Brazos County to ha- count the ballots if, if I need to. Uh, you know, the postal service thing is, is you know, it, it's, it's easy to just say, oh, it's a Trump appointee and he's trying to screw up the elections. But, you know, the postal service is in serious, you know, set aside elections, set aside Trump. The business model of the postal service is disastrous, right? Uh, given the technological changes we've had in this country, how do you maintain a postal service? Well, you're going to have to decide that this is, you know, just like it was when Ben Franklin was the first postmaster general at the
0: beginning of our country,
1: you're going to have to decide that this is a public service and not a business. And you just well, going and have also, to support it.
0: Yeah, they've been forced into bad contracts with private actors too where they deliver packages below costs as part of, you know, major contracts. Um, so there's a lot of I mean Part of it is uh, is because of the way their um, policy around it. Now, it's not that you couldn't find a way for them to be uh, even profitable. For example, you know, the post office, one proposal has been having them run checking accounts so that people that have a hard time getting access to checking accounts could have it at the local post office, could be interest free. Um, that's yeah, that's.
1: That's back to the future. A lot of countries mm-hmm. around the world ran postal accounts for, mm-hmm. for decades. Mm-hmm. Not so, us. We, we never did it. Yeah. But. So, so yeah, I mean, look, the, the, the whole issue of the Postal Service as a public policy issue, I think, is fascinating. But over the next three months, I want them to pick up the mail and deliver the mail. And I don't want them to not lock, you know, to, to lay people off, and I don't want them to 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 you know decide that on Wednesdays they're not picking up the mail. Uh, I think that as part of our commitment to democracy, you gotta you gotta pick up the mail for the next three months. Uh, and I don't know if you saw today the, the New York Times Jamal Bowie had a column that basically said, if you want Biden to be president and you can get to the polls, go vote, vote at the polls. I'm gonna vote at the polls. Of course here in Texas it's tough to get an absentee ballot, right? You have to you have to actually kind of be dying. You have to demonstrate that you have some disease. Uh, that's an exaggeration, but you have to have a, a good reason. Yeah. And and and, and the, the state of Texas has decided that fear of, of catching the COVID virus is not a good reason to get an absentee ballot. So I'm gonna put on my mask and I'm gonna go down and vote. Uh, but And if you can, do it, yeah, yeah. go vote in person. Early vote, maybe the lines will be short.
0: Keep your and keep your social distance. Keep your social <laughs> distance. And wear your
1: mask.
0: My mom will actually be working the polls in uh, in Georgia, and uh, it's one of the things she's picked up in retirement that I that I like that she does. And when people start uh, bashing elections, she's like, "No, I work there, and we do a good job." Even is she, in-
1: is she worried about COVID?
0: she is uh yeah they um they have been staying home they wear their masks they are like uh lots of other people i think uh, have had are feeling a little stir crazy and their risk profile is different than the one that i choose uh on certain things um but yeah they're not uh thankfully they're not deniers um they uh they have been taking it pretty seriously and pretty early on i think so it's uh
1: but she's still willing to work the polls. She's still planning to work the polls. Yep. So Good
0: on. yep. So one other thing I wanted to touch base on um, is leading up the to this uh, to this live recording. Um, we had been working towards working towards working towards a second stimulus package. Um, the as I recall, the house had passed something back in May. And then more recently, the Senate had passed uh, its own version that was missing a lot of the components from the House version or some talks. Um, And then the talks broke down uh, by all accounts, or at least by the accounts I've seen. And then the president issued an executive order um, to move forward some of the things that he wanted, Um, some things like... um, uh, extending the unemployment federal unemployment uh, additional payments uh, extending the um, uh, the for, not the forgiveness but the the hold on student loans as one a couple others i think there was some stuff in there about the evictions uh, but this is yeah, a bit that, of a mess
1: the the evictions one was the least operative because it just said the federal government will work to prevent evictions but that's all state it's state based mm-hmm. right Probably the, the, the most dishonest of the executive orders was the, uh, the, the the suspension of the of the payroll tax that supports Social Security and Medicare, because it might not. Most companies are going to continue to take it out of your check. I think Texas A&M is going to continue to take it out of our checks, Justin, but it's not like it's a relief of the tax. It's just a postponement of the tax. So if you don't pay in in uh, September and October and November, you're gonna uh, in December you might owe four months worth of of Social Security and Medicare taxes. So it's this is and 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 the Republican Senate did not want to suspend the payroll tax because it supports these vital programs, Social Security and Medicare, that are also very politically popular. Uh, but I think the most, probably the politically most advantageous one for the president is the executive order that says that the, that the federal government will continue to support extra unemployment benefits for people who are on the unemployment rolls. Not the 600 that they've been getting under the original act, uh, the original uh, stimulus or bailout or whatever you wanna call it, uh, but but the president said 400, but that's only if states can make up some of the difference. And of course, this will be challenging court because uh, Congress, this was not legislated, right? This is, Congress's job is to, is to appropriate spending and, and this was not appropriated by Congress, the president is going to, you know, redirect funds, some of them supposedly from FEMA, you know, in the midst, in the midst of the 2020 hurricane season, which we've already seen right, uh, Zayas, you know, wreak havoc in all sorts of places. Uh, that's not a person, that, 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 that was a tropical storm.
0: Uh, it was but, just but York, so, chaos. And- right. But, the,
1: but the, the, the optics on this, you know, are being spun and who knows, maybe successfully we'll have to see as Congress being unable to act, the Democrats and Pelosi not being willing to compromise, And the president breaking through all the political crap and 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 getting money to the people. I think that that's the way he's going to run it. Uh, We'll see how it works, but it it does give him something to to run on. That's not just uh, the coronavirus is not getting solved and the economy is getting worse.
0: Yeah, no, I um... It just feels like we're still in an episode of the apprentice right like all my underlings aren't getting it done so we're gonna do it this way <laughs> and see, <laughs> I mean, that, that betrays critic.
1: that betrays the fact that you've actually watched the apprentice i, I
0: never
1: <laughs> i've only i only know that he fires people at the
0: end yeah he fires people um but yeah i uh it's so it's unclear right as a starting point what which of these things he can actually do i mean it's not uncommon with executive orders they are um, often challenged in court, so that doesn't make them particularly unique. Um, but um, it, it looks kind of funny that what we were trying to do were legislate these exact things, and then the president just kind of issues the executive order. Um, so um, but yeah, it's uh, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think it could certainly play as a political win. Um, and it in some ways is, right? for for the, I mean, if the other choice is nothing, which was what I guess the American people were getting when talks broke down across the legislative branch. Um, If they can't help the American people in need, something is certainly better than nothing. Um, So maybe it does play well. Um, Certainly-
1: Do you think Pelosi Pelosi and Schumer misplayed this? They could have gotten a short-term extension, right? Just an extension on the unemployment benefits, uh, couldn't probably couldn't have gotten the state and local money, which I think is one of the big issues between yeah. the Democratic and Republican bills. The president was adamant: no money for state and local. State and local actually need the money uh, pretty desperately. They're going to have to. States are going to have to lay people off. They're going to have to lay off teachers. They're going to have to lay off firemen. You know, but yeah. and and if I were a Democrat, I'd, I'd be I'd be running on that. But I mean, did did Schumer and Pelosi overplay their hand? Good question.
0: Um It seems like it would have been much better to be able to celebrate that you had made a compromise and that you had gotten most of what, you know, some portion of what you wanted for the foreseeable future and left time to negotiate rather than digging in. Um but you know the other thing is and it's also so (laughs) it's so different from normal political analysis time. Like who's even going to remember in two weeks? Um, because the, it'll, it'll change to um, like some kind of crazy slur towards Kamala Harris that he comes up with in the next 48 hours. And no one will even (laughs) recall who, who are, what they'll see is that their amount went down and that people are getting evicted because it wasn't done well. Um, so we'll see. I, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't have a good sense on that.
1: Yeah, I, I, I don't either. Uh. Who knows which way this will cut, but, you know, people tend to blame the president when things go wrong. And so we'll, we'll see.
0: Well, let's move on. We got um, a couple more topics we want to hit on and I want to tap into your expertise, um, which uh, I imagine by now, a lot of our audience would have seen these videos, but just as a starting point, that explosion was something out of a horror movie. I mean, you see flames, 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 and poof. It's um, like a mushroom. It was. It was not like a mushroom cloud. It was a mushroom. It was a mushroom cloud. A, a cloud. A mushroom cloud. Um, so this is like. A, and when you see the pictures too, I mean, the damage is just. I mean, it's really hard to. I mean, we become synthesized, You know, desynthesized to everything because it's all just another click and another picture, and we don't get to focus on anything for any real amount of time. But the 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 whole port. Seems to be just demolished, and so you know what. What I know, the government resigned, the prime minister and the cabinet resigned, um, maybe today or yesterday. But what's your <laughs> sense of what's going on and what we can expect moving forward?
1: So, the the political system in Lebanon is rotten to the core, and and there have been serious issues of governance. For ages, but but they've got, if anything they've gotten worse. People were out protesting in the streets in October, November of last year, and uh, they uh, the the government at the time resigned. For which, but you, and and the central bank, which through the civil war, nineteen seventy five to nineteen ninety one thereabouts. Throughout the Civil War and and since, the central bank had functioned to maintain the value of the currency. Mm -hmm. It was the one institution in Lebanese governance that actually worked, right? Uh, That's collapsed as well. There's there's inflation, the value of the currency's been devalued. Uh, Lots of Lebanese, for decades, have tried to leave and you find Lebanese all over the world. I mean, you know, throughout the, the from the late 19th century, Lebanese have been migrating to the United States, to South America, uh, to Europe. When the oil boom hit in the Middle East in the 70s, you find Lebanese uh, going out to the Gulf to work. I mean, you know, as, as, as a nation, it's a, it's, a, it's a relatively educated group. But I I think that the ones who are remaining, who have any skills, they're looking to leave, right? Uh, and it's a shame. I would say it's time for a revolution in Lebanon, except for the fact that the state is so non-existent, I don't know what you would revolt against, right? The, the state has been completely captured by... By sectarian political groups and militias. And they've just divided up the spoils among them with very little concern for governance. Uh, you know, I could talk for an hour about the history of Lebanon. And, uh, I think you and I did a podcast way back when where I think I talked for four hours about. The <laughs>
0: Our first potting together. I think you did yeah. talk for over an hour and a half. <laughs> yeah,
1: uh, uh, I think we finished the whole bottle of wine. Yep, we did.
0: Yeah, yeah. Not on Bushkill uh, and Court. This was a not Bushkill and Court. We uh, do not
1: drink during Bushkill and Court. Bush do drink. not do that. <laughs> we won't talk about before and after, but during <laughs> Bushkill <School laughs> and Court, we do. Uh, so yeah, I, 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 I'm I'm not optimistic that anything. Uh, A substantive is going to come out of these protests in Lebanon. Uh, The rebuilding of the Lebanese state will require, in essence, the reduction in power of the most important political actors in the country. And at the top of that list is Hezbollah, which is armed, powerful, with the support of a regional power, Iran. And Hezbollah has benefited from the decline of the Lebanese state. And I'm not sure Hezbollah would sit by and uh, allow the Lebanese state to be rebuilt in a way that that could challenge Hezbollah's power. So I'm profoundly pessimistic. Uh, I mean, look, I'm profoundly pessimistic about almost everything, as you know. I'm profoundly pessimistic about most of the Middle East these days. But I'm more pessimistic about Lebanon than any place else. Uh, and and uh, it's just a terrible shame. I mean, people should, I don't know if people followed the story. There's all sorts of conspiracy theories running around. The Israelis bombed a Hezbollah weapons depot, and that's what set this fire off. But as far as I can tell, it, it appears that uh, there was this large storehouse of ammonium nitrate which of course is a, is a chemical compound you can use to make fertilizer and all, but you can also use to blow up buildings, right? It's what Timothy McVeigh used to blow up the federal building in Oklahoma City back in the 1990s. Uh, although I think he used one, one hundredth of the, of the amount that blew up in Beirut. And, and it was, this was confiscated from a ship Six years ago, it was stored at the port. Nobody knew what to do with it. The government, you know, people kept saying, it's your job, it's your job, it's your job, it's your job. Nobody, it was nobody's job. And apparently uh, there was a, a warehouse next to the, where this ammonium nitrate was stored that was storing firecrackers and other flammables and it caught on fire. Did somebody set it on fire? Nobody knows, but look, dockside warehouse fires happen. Yeah. And we know from, the, from, the, from the, the videos that there was, you know, one explosion and then the big explosion, the red explosion, right? Yeah. Which was the ammonium nitrate. And, and, and so I, I don't think it was a conspiracy. I don't think anybody deliberately set this fire to blow up the port of Beirut. I don't know if his fellow was storing weapons there. I doubt it. It's East Beirut, which is not a stronghold of Hezbollah. I don't think Hezbollah controls the port. They control the airport. You could see them storing weapons around the airport. But I don't think they control the port the way they control the airport in parts of southern Beirut, neighborhood for those of, for people who follow the Middle East called the Dahiya, which is like, you know, it's little Iran. You drive through it and they have pictures of, of Ayatollah Khomeini and Ayatollah Khamenei in the Dahiya. Uh, I don't know why Hezbollah would store uh, weapons in, in East Beirut, the Christian part of town, You know, by a port which I don't believe they control to the extent they control other parts of Lebanon. In any event, it's a profoundly sad tale, right? 150 deaths at this current count, thousands of people injured, tens of thousands uh, homeless because of this it's a, it's a horrible story but not one I, I fear not one that's going to lead to the kind of change that Lebanon needs
0: well um, I'm gonna leave that analysis to you um, I don't have anything other uh, to add other than um, I was uh, looking into it a little bit and the Prime minister that resigned says the says the same thing that you say which is sure his cabinet um, Uh, didn't do a great job and they failed here as well. But this is really a corrupt state and a powerless state to its core. Um, So that resonates with what the prime minister himself said. And uh, it makes me wish, Greg, that uh, America was outward facing, building uh, networks uh, and institutions and international cooperation, doing our due diligence and multilateral talks and helping develop the rest of the world when they need help, maybe not always through, uh, through violent means, but just leading the charge on investment in places that needed and helping secure them. It's really unfortunate, I think, that we have uh, that we've abdicated that role as a, as, a, as a world leader. Yeah. Tom
1: Friedman had a column in the New York Times today in which he compared Lebanon to the United States. He said, the problem with Lebanon is everything's political. Even something as technocratic as making sure the port is safe. And he says he fears that's what's happening in the United States. Everything, mask wearing, unemployment benefits, everything is becoming political.
0: Well, on a list of things that might... Speaking of things things
1: becoming political.
0: I did see another stat when you mentioned masks, that something like, it was like 95% of Democrats uh in a poll saying that masks should be required and almost the exact opposite in terms of republicans should, like
1: to this should, should be
0: required should be required and then republicans like 95% like the split was like should you wear a mask to help you know uh decrease the spread of covid or should it be required and it was this was also a thing i saw while poking in and checking in with Nate Silver um about how quick you know these things become politicized And uh, back to school is, uh, is one that is arguably um, suffering from that as well. Before we jump into all this, you know, back to school is its own complex issue, uh, which is something I think we should uh, say from the beginning and the type of school I think really matters, uh, which is something that I'd like to talk a little bit about that the, the needs and the things that K through 12 provide by having students gathered in the classroom. Is fundamentally, I would argue, different than what uh, different than the same types of needs for bringing uh, college students at least into the classroom. Um, but to uh, to share my exciting news from my hometown, um, which is Paulding County, Georgia, um, was in the news just a few days ago because a picture went viral of a student um, capturing the the hallway where students were coming both ways and in the picture you can see um, maybe 10 or 12 students and I think one or two have a mask on. So this goes viral. I have uh, have left Facebook as you know um, and I'm not participating in the Facebook conversation these days. Just in time um, my mother has been relaying to me some of the uh, ways in which this is playing out as have some some friends from there um, but then the school district kind of uh Uh, Initially doubles doubles down, sort of, in the way I described it. It suspends the student for it being a violation of the student handbook that they had posted. You know, a picture from within the building. To their credit, by the following Monday, that was reversed, um, which was at least something nice to see. And the school's response was to close down for two days, (laughs) (laughs) which there's such a ridiculous response to COVID might be spreading in your school that I don't even know where to, uh, where to begin.
1: So they, they uh, closed down without any tests.
0: Um, well, I think, I don't remember the details of whether they had any, uh, any tests or not. I think they did have a number, like nine students test positive. Positive. Okay. Um, and so then they were going to shut down for two days, go virtual for two days, which, uh, my humor at it isn't that they shut down. That was, Maybe the the right approach, I'm not sure that what they were doing made a lot of sense to begin with, but for two days, it just is like a, I just, I don't know. I just think that's a hilarious, it was back, you know, it reminds me of back in March when the conversation was like, you know, two more weeks and two yeah. more weeks and two more weeks. And we're like, no, this is not a two more week thing. This is an 18 to 24 month ordeal that we're going to be dealing with.
1: And we're only, and we're only in month
0: six. We're only in month six. So I think this, so I'd like to start with K through 12. Um, you know, the way this is playing out in Texas is different than how it's playing out in Georgia, more similar maybe than other places. But, you know, I think a lot of people who are concerned about coronavirus would say like, this is just a, a bad idea. You're putting students and teachers in danger. Um, but again, with K through twelve, I, I do think this is a little bit more nuanced, and that you have to think more broadly about the consequences of keeping school children home. For example, think of large cities, um, like the example I was talking with one of our colleagues about, is the LA school district. Uh, think about all the all the parents that are essential workers, that are retail, that are service, um, that are having to show up, and their kids. The school system is closed, and So what what do you do with five-year-olds and seven-year-olds and eight-year-olds if you and your spouse have to show up to work to pay the bills to survive? Um, And so I do think, you know, how the details of it, I think, really matter. Um, But also these schools all over the country, it's not like they're floating around in resources to just be agile and adjust. Not in Texas and not in Georgia anyways. Maybe there are school districts overflowing with money, but not the bulk of these systems. So I think the K through 12 system is really in, it's kind of easy to pick at my hometown a little bit, but I do think they're in a bit of a, uh, a quandary here where if the rest of the economy is opening up because we're not staying home and we haven't fully been able to change the economy, these kids can't just stay home by themselves. I mean, what's your, what's your insight into, uh, I mean, it's going to be a mess as it plays out. Other counties are starting to see lots of tests something like 90 million, I mean, uh, 90,000 90 90, uh, under uh, uh, K through 12 students have tested positive in the last couple of weeks. And this is just going to be a nightmare.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't think that there's a silver bullet for this, right? I mean, I, I think you got to break down K through 12 into component parts. I mean, high schools are different than Primary schools, right? K through four, you might be able to to. And it's, I, you know, I, I don't know the, the the literature, but what you read is that it's so important for kids in those early grades to to have the classroom experience. Mm-hmm. Yep. So K through four, you know, get them get them into the classroom. Uh, and yeah, it's risky for teachers. I know it's it's pay them more. You know? nice uh, five through eight. You can do more online. Nine through twelve? Yeah. Maybe mostly online. Now you know, five through eight is tough on parents. You know, some of those kids are getting old enough that maybe they can stay home, but are they gonna go online? Are they gonna are they gonna go to school if the parents aren't there? I mean it's it's I don't have a solution to this, Justin, but I think that what we need to be doing at this point is throwing money at schools. You know, we, maybe some we level is,
0: state and local level, maybe, I mean, that run the schools, yeah. maybe at the state and local level, they could use some research yeah. for their schools. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think we've got to use the borrowing power of the federal government to throw money at this problem. You know, we, we make fun of throwing money at problems, but that's how we solved a lot of problems in America. You know, that's how we put a man on the moon. We just threw money at it and all sorts of things failed, but we kept spending money. Right. And I think that for the next year, you know, we're going to be so disrupted. we got to throw money at these problems. And then we have to have the discipline to raise taxes when we get back on our feet, uh, because we are running up a huge debt. And I, I'm not as debt phobic as I used to be back in my younger days when I was a a good, solid, middle-of-the-road Republican. But uh, but I think that every great power, well, I don't want to say every, many of the great powers can mark their decline from when they became a, a debtor nation instead of a creditor nation. And And one of the great things about being the world power is that people will lend you money. But when all of a sudden they don't think you're the world power anymore, that money dries up real fast and all sorts of people are knocking on your door to get paid back. So we have to be careful. I say spend the money now. You know, I'm a good Keynesian these days. You spend the money when you need to and then you raise taxes when 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 things get better and try to pay that, try try to relieve some of that debt. And, and, you know, we've done half of that since the Reagan years, right? We've (laughs) spent the money. But we, but but it was only Bill Clinton, and to some small extent Barack Obama, but not much because we we're still getting out of the Great Recession. Uh, who who were willing to raise taxes? Yeah, I think Joe Biden has got to has got once we get out of this, and we're back on 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 firmer footing. Joe Biden has got to to look into the tax code
0: a Even rates aside, I mean, the tax code's a mess. Yeah. Everyone is in agreement. Uh, well, anyone that's looked into it, both from liberals to conservatives to, to capitalists, uh, wherever they fall on that spectrum, I mean, uh, to, to, you know, everyone sort of, it's not efficient. There are too many loopholes. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, so I, I'm hopeful that maybe we could come up with something that both well, we can, whether we actually do or not it's another issue, yeah. but we could come up with a system that both raises more revenue and is less distortionary yes, uh, and less regressive. Um, it's pretty clear. I mean, not that it's easy, but the, the strategies for doing that are, are relatively straightforward.
1: Yeah. And, and, and if you don't need 60 votes in the Senate, if you can do it with 51, maybe it can happen.
0: So on this, you know, this is, as educators, this is something we're dealing with, um, and it's something that uh, we've been having faculty meetings about and discussing amongst ourselves. It's also been a broader topic for our profession, because we're not K through 12. Um, We are the great uh, Texas A&M University, Research One University, uh, taking on students in general after they're 18 and plus. Um, And... One of the reasons why I wanted to highlight that that uh, it was different through K through 12 and that you know it was nice that you highlighted that as children get older, their needs and what they need from education change and their flexibility and adaptability to different situations changes. And the way universities, this has played out amongst universities more generally, um, I must say has been really... Uh, well, you know that because uh, I have uh, been frustrated in your ear, um, but I, you know, it's been really disappointing, I guess, is the only way I know how to put it. I, I certainly understand all of our financial constraints and um, and particularly even universities that don't have the type of resources that we do. Um, and I understand that there are lots of institutions uh, that aren't ours that that making some of these decisions could, could potentially put them in a, in a horrid financial situation and put them at a comparative disadvantage in the long term. And they have to choose between financial short term and, uh, and the well being of their faculty, students, and staff. Um, but for the rich universities or the wealthier universities, um, it's, still, uh, it's still a, a huge hit um, from a financial standpoint. If we if we change up bringing our students into face-to-face class um, it's something that we talked about internally in the university um, but it doesn't bankrupt us it doesn't it's not a 20% hit this isn't um, causing A;M to go under but throughout uh, A;M and another a number of other particularly southern universities University of Georgia being another um, have continued to insist that we need to bring our students, on not only bring them on campus, which is, is one issue that's worth discussing, I think, but also that, you know, essentially at all costs, students should be in the physical classroom together with their professor. And this is optimum build to me as uh, the students want this. This is for the students' education. And I just, I'm kind of tired of hearing the argument because I don't believe it. I don't mm-hmm. believe that it's about, get, that it's really about, it's what students want, and that it's really about their general best education in in mind. Um, one, if it is about the students wanting it, we should we have leadership for a reason. The reason is to students don't get everything they want, and of course, eighteen and nineteen year olds want to be on campus and seeing their friends. That doesn't make it in any way a good idea whether or not uh, we should do it as kind of as um, as one piece of it. Um, So I I don't, (laughs) I I think our focus at at Texas A&M in particular has been on getting half of our students to class or half of our classes in person, I guess, which was something we started out early on. It looks like it's what we're mostly able to hit. Um, There are some reasons for that that have come out of the tussles with the Trump administration on whether our international students can be here or come here without taking classes in person. But why do we still think it's a good idea to bring half of our half of our classes back in person, when it's clearly still in a hot spot? It's much worse than it was in March, and our students can learn online. It's suboptimal for sure, and like we still need to have campus open. But why is this a good idea? Why is what's this insistence? Why is it a good idea to have half our classes in person?
1: So I'll make the argument. Uh, personally, I, I, I think in three weeks, we'll all be teaching remotely anyway. Uh, we'll see. Uh, I also wonder if we all have a football season and if we're not going to have a football season, the students all go home anyway.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the football season is really the, is really the answer. Right.
1: Uh, (laughs) you know, there are thousands more students on campus in the fall than in the spring.
0: You know that, right? And in the, then in the summer, for example, where we've been oh, talking. in the summer, food. yeah. Summer is another story. but Okay, so
1: here's, we'll, we'll be able to see what students want, right? Because they can vote with their feet or not with their feet. Uh, they don't have to go to class, even if it's face-to-face. Every one of the face-to-face classes has a Zoom component to it, right? hmm that's university policy. So we'll see how many show up. Yeah. Well, no. we'll uh, be That'll be a very interesting statistic. Uh, second, I think that, that the university is operating under the assumption that if we don't have uh, a good number of face-to-face classes, then students will uh, defer or just drop. If that happens, we will take a serious budgetary hit with our formula funding, which depends upon the amount of students who are taking the classes, and that that could then lead to further cuts from the state. Now, those are assumptions. Are they right? Are they wrong? I don't know. Uh, But I think that that's the driver here. but I cannot, I cannot imagine that if you bring 60,000, let's not even say 60, you know, 45,000 students back to College Station, Texas with faculty, with staff, that you're not gonna get a spike in cases. I, I mean, I just, you know, on a small liberal arts college campus, maybe you can social distance. You can't social distance in those you know student apartments that the students live in
0: yeah uh, and in not in a lot of our classrooms i mean not, yeah you know we so yeah not in a lot of the classrooms um either yeah. <laughs> I,
1: I well i, mean, I think I, the, I, I told our dean let's just set up tents and have class outside i know it's hot yeah, yeah but let, let's have class outside uh you have a well, powerpoint the, well send it to all the students and they can bring their computers uh and and you know we're we're blessed with pretty good weather down here through thanksgiving maybe some days you'll have to put a jacket on but
0: yeah not many not in college station
1: let's just let's teach outside
0: well i think what's so one i think k2 k through 12 is just showing us what's going to happen right it'll be all over the news there'll be spikes all over um it's just going to be a it's going to be a just a pr nightmare as far as that goes um not to mention the actual sickness and, and death, um, that it's going to cause. Um, so yeah, I, it's, um, as you can tell, I, I'm even having a hard word, hard time putting all my words to it. I appreciate you talking through it with me. I know, uh, uh um, it's, a uh, it's tough right now to, to figure out what the right answer is and how to do all this. But I do, I do just think this is, um, is a bit reckless on the university's part. And, um, I do think we should, we should do better. Our professional, our professional colleagues in lots of places that have similar amounts of resources and similar amounts of prestige, um, seem to understand this and, you know, we can sort of end with what we started with, which is it sort starts to strike me like this is partisan, just like everything else, like whether or not, mine and your and our students and our staff's safety and whether or not it's a good idea or necessary to bring all these students back starts to feel like it's not slightly politicized but very politicized because lots of places with less cases than us and as a similar ability to be prepared are making different decisions yeah Um, and we're seeing this also play out with football as you mentioned which is um, several of the major conferences are Uh, that are not in red states (laughs) um, are already canceling the football season, whereas the football programs in the South and in the red states are pushing back on this. And same thing with the masks. I think it's, you know, at some point, universities should not be politicized in this way and we should do better. Uh, (laughs) Well,
1: I, I, you're not going to get an argument from me on that. And I, I, I actually think that, The fact that the Big 10 and the Pac-12 both today uh, canceled their fall football season, who knows, they might play it in the spring, right? Is is a really interesting leading edge for... uh, and And a lot of these universities are our peer universities. These are the universities that we see academically as our peers, right? The University of Michigan, Ohio State University. University of Wisconsin right the University of California system right these these are the University of Washington these are I think these are these are places that are all listed in among in our planning documents as our peer institutions and and they've called off their football season so I I, I think that do we know more than they do no I don't think so I think that we're just more committed. Maybe it's partisanship. Maybe it's other reasons. We're just more committed to this idea that everything is going to be normal.
0: <sighs> denial is a just a it's just a wonderful drug. Um,
1: it's it, denial is not just a river in Egypt.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I can't even improve upon that. We're going to stop there. Um, Greg, it's good to see you. Um, To remind the uh, audience, uh, hopefully all this went well on YouTube, we'll continue to do live every other week, uh, Tuesday, 6 p.m. We will have some guests in case you're getting tired of Greg and I uh, and our opinions. We will work in some uh, other experts. We're at least gonna have um, a couple public health experts. We'll have one or two economists. We'll have one or two uh, political scientists, public policy-minded folks. So we'll have some guests to add to the conversation. And um, yeah, it's good to get back in the routine, Greg. I've I've missed staring at your face as we're doing our recordings.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So we'll see everybody on the 25th.
0: (laughs) Sounds good. And thank you so much. We'll see you then.
1: Bye-bye.